Hub, and Spoke. Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Patrick Cox, and this is Subtitle, stories about languages and the people who speak them. We're a co-production of Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America. Over much of the 19th century, some members of the U.S. Congress would rail against the invasion of a certain group of immigrants who'd settled in large numbers in many parts of the country. People who just wouldn't fit in didn't understand the American way of life. Their culture was alien, their food strange, and their language, well, they continued using it. They refused to learn English. You know who I'm talking about, Germans. Despite all of the accusations, and despite two world wars with Americans and Germans on opposite sides, Germans did find a way to fit into American society. And their descendants, well, they did okay for themselves too, to name a few. Dwight Eisenhower, John Steinbeck, Grace Kelly, Jennifer Lawrence. Not too shabby. There are German-American communities all over, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Texas. But there are especially large concentrations right in the middle of the country, in Kansas and Missouri. That's maybe why the German language stuck around there for so long. In fact, if you seek German out, it's still there. That's what Suzanne Hogan did. She hosts the podcast A People's History of Kansas City. It's a production of public radio station KCUR. Suzanne spent some time with a group of linguists and a bunch of German heritage speakers. This is their story. They snack Deutsch anders as we don't here. They speak German differently than we do. They speak German differently than we do. They snack Deutsch ganz anders as what we don't. Guten Tag. Hello. That's about the extent of the German I know, besides other super basic words like danke, thanks, welcome in, welcome, and I guess prost. Which means cheers. I've been to Germany a few times, but I don't speak German. You know, people love to talk about their ancestry, stories of their family's heritage, how they came to be who they are today, and their languages that bound them together, everybody's own personal histories. My dad's side, the Hogan and Grogan side, have Irish and French heritage. And my mom is the daughter of Ecuadorian and Costa Rican immigrants. She grew up in Kansas in the 1950s, speaking Spanish in the house. When I was a kid, We didn't speak Spanish in the house growing up. We'd visit family abroad, and I'd take Spanish in school, but it wasn't until I got older that I really took on trying to learn the language so I could have deeper relationships with members of my family and have a stronger connection with my heritage. After so many years of studying, I'm not fluent in Spanish or anything, but I feel like I get by. But this whole idea of language being passed down or not or potentially lost over time from generation to generation, hits a nerve. At least it does for me, because it's so deeply personal. And that's really what this episode is all about. But not Spanish or me. Unique German dialects that would have commonly been heard around Kansas and Missouri 150 years ago are in danger of being lost. These German-speaking immigrants came to the Midwest, Missouri, and Kansas from various places in Europe, from what is now considered Germany, plus Austria, parts of Russia, 
and they played a big role in shaping our communities today. But the language they brought with them, their unique dialects, are fading into the past. Why is this happening? What happens to people when they lose their language? How does how we talk shape who we are? If you want to hear German the way it is in our textbooks, you have to listen to the news. Luckily, there are some people out there who are exploring these questions. I went on a trip with some linguistic researchers from the University of Kansas to visit some old timers who are trying to keep their unique German dialect alive. Professor Bill Keel and a couple of his assistants drove me to Coal Camp, Missouri, a town with a little over a thousand people about two hours southeast from Kansas City. That's Neil, isn't it? A wave of German immigrants, mostly from northern Germany near Bremen and Hamburg, settled in the Coal Camp area in the 1830s. And with them, they brought their farming skills, strong work ethic, and low German language, or what's called Plattdeutsch. Lange Tiet. Yeah. A long time? It's not Bladuch. You're Suzanne. I'm Suzanne. Hi. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. Nice to meet you. We're here to meet Neil Heimsoth. Neil is like the glue of Cole Camp's Plattdeutsch speaking community. Neil, Professor Bill Keel, and his research team go back a ways. The same group came out to pay Neil a visit almost 10 years ago. And immediately, there's kind of this family reunion vibe happening with all the catching up, jokes, and stories. Neil invites us inside his painting studio, which is right off the main strip in town. Thank you so much. Yes, glad you're here. Neil is 85. He's a retired illustrator for the Forest Service. The walls of his studio are covered with his paintings. At a table in the center of the studio sits one of Neil's old friends, Gene Beckman, with guitar in hand. They both used to run a low German theater, and they want to show off some stuff that they used to do. Gene and I performed. I harmonized with him and played the spoons while he played guitar. And uh, God, we had a lot of fun with that. We were famous. (laughs) Take this job and shove it. Name this, get home and shoe, Daddy. Ready? I'm ready. Take this job and shove it. Name this, get home and shoe, Daddy. Got my handy mail. Like Neil, Gene Beckman is also 85. He's lived in Coal Camp his whole life. He grew up an only child on a farm, speaking Plattdeutsch with his family. We caught a lot of fish out of the creek and shot quails and ducks, lived off the land. Gene's proud to say that he went to a one-room schoolhouse growing up. That's where he learned English, like a lot of other German coal campers. I tell kids in school now, we had it tough. We didn't have any indoor restroom to go to. We didn't have any school hot lunch. We didn't have any water fountain to go to. We had to go to the pump and get her well. A lot of us ate just biscuits and cornbread that were left from breakfast. After high school, Gene bought a guitar for $13 and taught himself how to play. Back when Gene and Neil had the Low German Theater, he translated over 40 country songs like Take This Job and Shove It into their own Low German or Plattdeutsch dialect. Suzanne, I think I told you that we don't know how to write low German. So what Gene does, Gene writes it phonetically so he can read it. Oh, but I see. We okay. were brought up thinking low German was not a written language. 
Neil and Jean love to sit around and share stories and dirty jokes and Plattdeutsch. And they really like to tell Professor Kiel about all the things their parents used to say when they were growing up. Have you heard, uh, hey, it's so cloak, hey, can cotton sheet and boots? <laughs> <laughs> he is so smart, he can smell cat poop in the dark. <laughs> That's pretty smart. Yeah. And even though I don't speak low German, I'm able to pick up on some of it. Sheet. Yeah. Sheet. Can you imagine what that is in English? Uh, shit? Yes. <laughs> Are these expressions that you guys know or have heard before? A few, but, but a lot of this is unique. Yeah. We had so much fun with yeah, the language just... over the years. It was wonderful. But it's really disappearing. Would your grandkids get that joke or understand it? Oh, God, no. Not even my kids. Yeah. No. Neil hosts monthly low German speaking groups at a restaurant in town where folks get together and speak the dialect and play cards. He's proud to say that they have almost 25 members, but he wishes there were more, and none of the members are very young. The language is the heart and soul of the immigrant community. It's the glue that holds their whole culture together. So Professor Bill Keel, the head of the research team that took me to Cole Camp, has been with the German Studies Department at the University of Kansas for nearly 30 years. And they may try to keep uh, cuisine, uh, special foods going. They may have uh, festivals that they'll celebrate. But without that language, uh, really the, the core of that culture is decimated. And the thing is, when you talk about the German language in the Midwest, you're talking about a whole lot of very different dialects. And that goes way back. Before unification in 1871, there was no nation known as Germany. Germanic people are part of an ancient entity made up of different tribes. The German language culturally bound people together in much of Central Europe, including Switzerland, Austria, Luxembourg, Bohemia, Hungary, Prussia, the Russian Empire. They were Lutheran, Baptist, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Methodist, Mennonite, Old Order Amish. The reasons why more than 5 million German speakers came to the U.S. are just as diverse as the people. Some were escaping persecution. Many were looking for new opportunities in a time when Europe was going through a lot of changes. Land was a major incentive. A lot of Germans ended up in Missouri because of the poetic imagination and drive of a guy named Gottfried Duden. Duden was a German lawyer and former military guy who came to the U.S. in 1824. He bought some farmland just west of St. Louis, and he hired people to clear it and run a farm for him as he spent his time reading, writing, and exploring Missouri's countryside. When he returned to Germany three years later, he wrote a book called A Report on a Journey to the Western States of North America. And in this book, he describes Missouri as like the most magical, amazing place ever, like the Garden of Eden. I mean, he described it like uh, you walk out of your door in the morning and a deer comes up to be killed for fresh venison, you know, and, and it's always summertime and yeah, yeah, yeah. all the, you know, all the conditions are great for growing crops. Professor Bill Keel says Duden enthusiastically wove together fact and also a lot of fiction to describe Missouri living. Now, subsequently, the uh, German immigrants would refer to Duden as the lying dog. This book was widely published and distributed across Germany. 
And in the 1830s, the decade following, whether it was because of the book or whatever, one-third of the Germans who came to the U.S. chose to settle in Missouri. Even though Missouri maybe wasn't everything Duden said it was, the new settlers got to work developing land for farming and establishing townships. Now, this was that era right before the Civil War. Germans in Missouri were mostly against slavery. In fact, in Coal Camp, where Neil and Jean grew up, Confederate soldiers attacked and killed some German residents in the middle of the night because they were siding with the Union. Also leading up to the Civil War, Kansas becomes a state in 1861. And then the Homestead Act is passed in 1862, which opened up and incentivized more land for settlement. So lots of Germans settled there, too. Professor Bill Keel. People came to Kansas in the 19th century and even to this day from various parts of the German-speaking world and brought their native local dialects with them. People from Russia, the Volga Germans or the Mennonites. You can see the immigrant influence on Kansas if you look at a map of the state with small towns called Bremen, Stuttgart, and Bern. For the past 30-plus years, Professor Keel has been going to all these communities across Kansas and Missouri to track and document the different German dialects people are speaking there. Here's an example of three different people he's interviewed who are all saying the same sentence. The times are bad. The tears are schlecht. What you just heard were three very good examples of a low German, a middle German, and an upper German dialect. There are pockets of all these different dialects all across Kansas and Missouri. And as you can hear, a simple sentence like saying the times are bad can sound really different depending on which dialect you speak. The tears are schlecht. You may have heard these terms high German and low German before. And it's not about high or low culture. It's about the topography of Europe and how the German language developed. Professor Kiel has a good way of explaining it. If you look at the geography of Central Europe, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, the mountains are in Austria, Switzerland. The sea coast, the North Sea and the Baltic Sea, are in the extreme north. And where the land is low, the dialects are classified as low German. Where the dialects are in the mountains, they're upper German. And in the middle, guess what? They're middle. One of the craziest things that I learned during all of this is that standard German is not even that old. The orthography, which is the conventional spelling system of a language, didn't even exist until 1901. But a standard German was becoming more streamlined in Germany. In places like Missouri and Kansas, those earlier dialects were preserved. That is, until recently. A quick interruption from me to say that since we ended our last season all those months ago, the subtitle newsletter has been delivering missives every two or three weeks into people's inboxes. Maybe your inbox. The newsletter's a quick, fun read with our take on language-themed stories in the news. You'll also hear what's coming up in future subtitle episodes. And we recommend other podcasts we're listening to. There's some goofy lingo stuff, too. You'll laugh. You'll cry. Not too many tears, I hope. You'll tell your friends. You can sign up at subtitlepod.com newsletter. That's subtitlepod.com newsletter. 
For decades in the U.S., Germans were the largest non-English-speaking immigrant group in America. There used to be over 1,000 German newspapers, with lots of them in Missouri and Kansas. Now, according to the U.S. Census, of the 44 million people who claim German ancestry, only 2% of those people speak the language. A lot of people blame the loss of the language on anti-German discrimination around World War I and II, which could have played a factor. But Professor Kiel says he thinks it's been more of a gradual process that has to do with changes in education and people becoming less isolated. Because most of the people he interviews who still speaks their dialect are in their 80s and 90s. Why are they now the last generation? Well, if you look at some of the social aspects of the United States, Kansas, Missouri, the Model T is introduced in 1908. Our system of paved roads gets going in the 1920s and 30s. High school education becomes a major factor in the between the two wars. Prior to World War I, very few people completed high school. Professor Keel loves to bring up the one counterexample. The big exception are, of course, our friends, the Old Order Amish. No cars, don't go to school past eighth grade, stay on the farm, and speak Deutsch. In the past decade alone, the Amish population in Kansas has more than doubled. In Missouri, it's quadrupled. Those populations are not in danger of losing their dialects. Neil Heimsoth in Coal Camp, Missouri, is kind of an example of a rare thing. Though he didn't pass the language down to his kids, he's a guy who's actively trying to keep the dialect alive and relevant in his community. It's something that's not so common in other places. And that's why Professor Keel wanted me to come along on their trip, so I could meet Neil and Jean and get to know them myself and learn how they're keeping a dying tradition alive. This old couple lived on a farm and they had 10 kids. Neil loves to tell this joke. And the old man said, Mama, that can't gone. We have time, kinder. It can't go on. We can't have any more children. The husband has counted it out and is explaining his idea for a possible solution to his wife. Yea, my Kent. Every May we get a child. So that meant that it in August. That means it happens in August. So, new mama, yea, your ick slop in the shoon in August. <laughs> I will sleep, sleep in the barn home. in August. <laughs> and she says, Yeah, Papa, when do mates that that Hilton died? Papa, if you think that will really help, then slop it door oak. Then I'll sleep there too. <laughs> but this visit isn't just about fun and jokes. Professor Keel and his research assistants also made the trip back to Coal Camp so they could gather more interviews for the archive. They set up recording equipment and have Gene Beckman, our guitar player, and Neil's wife, Marilyn, who's also from Coal Camp, read a series of sentences. Okay, so we're starting. Would you um, just state your name and, and your birth date, please? Okay, I'm uh, Eugene Beckman. My birthday is June 23rd, 1934. Can you say it in German? I've been geboren in June 1920, Okay, and what town are you from? Eggman from Coal Camp, Missouri. Okay. And then 
some fun stuff starts to happen. I remember the first time we heard the German word for squirrel. We'd never heard it before. Okay, what do you guys call them? Squirrel. <laughs> we angle, we, we Americanize those type of things. Did you have any kind of a plot word for a squirrel? Squirrel. The Saxons in Perry County had oak rabbits. Oak, oak rabbits. rabbits. Isn't that wild? I've, I've asked people in Germany and they've never heard that. We have tons of those kind of, you know, that are just our own, you know, cold camp plots, what we call it. Yeah. And like, sure, we say sure. I tell you, the Germans laughed at us when we'd say sure. You know, like, sure, sure, you know, sure. And they just. <laughs> All things that make their dialect, their coal camp plot, unique. Neil and Marilyn have both taken a few trips back to where their family came from in Germany and Austria to make connections and map out their family tree. Coal camp as a town has also been trying to maintain a strong German identity. The town strip on Main has some German-themed shops, and they host an Oktoberfest every year. Back in 1989, when the town celebrated its 150th anniversary, a German dance group came all the way over just for the festivities. Neil and Jean's Low German Theater performed. Neil remembers it was a time when Plattdeutsch speakers became really proud of their language. We had people here who were kind of ashamed that they were German because of the Second World War. All of a sudden, they were proud that they could talk German. For the celebration, Neil and Marilyn helped publish The Little Red History Book, a book that tells the German immigration story of the town. That project is actually how they met and fell in love. And just a few years ago, Neil and Marilyn created a German immigrant memorial next to Neil's studio. For an immigrant community and their descendants trying to keep their story alive, history books and memorials have their place. But there's nothing like food, drink, and song, living history. After a long day of telling stories and doing research, we decide to head to a restaurant called The German Table for a meal. Sam Cole has been running the restaurant for eight years. The original German restaurant of Kohl Camp that was around when she was a kid shut down. And she realized that Kohl Camp had to have a German restaurant. So she decided to start one back up again. But she got a lot of help from the community. Neil actually was my guinea pig whenever I was testing testing my recipes, making sure I had them right. You know, when I was learning, I'd call him and I'd say, hey, are you home? I want to bring you something. Try. You know, and he'd say, no, that's not right. It needs this red wine or it needs this. And so a lot of the credit goes to Neil for my my recipe. So I hope you like him. Then if you don't like him, it's blame Neil. <laughs> it's Neil's fault. I'm going to have a bowl of soup. We order schnitzels, potato pancakes. Neil really likes the Reuben soup. And it all tastes great. So good job, Neil and Sam. A new meal is complete, of course, without a cold German beer and some apple schnapps. I just wanted to introduce you to Wild Bill Keel. It's Professor. Bill. I don't know where you got that wild bill. As more and more of Neil's friends start to come into the restaurant, it quickly becomes clear that we aren't just here for dinner. Neil has arranged for a surprise performance. He's invited the Kohl Camp German singers to perform some songs for us. We're going to sing for you 
one of our, our national anthem of coal camp in honor of the, our Im immigrants that came from North Germany. We love the song Vote North Say Valens, sung in Low German. It's like one of those moments where you feel like you're living in a musical. Do you ever have those? As if on cue, Professor Keel and the restaurant owner Sam join in, singing along. Professor Keel even starts to dance. As the day winds down and we start to say goodbye, the question that started this trip resurfaces in my mind. What do we lose when we lose a language or part of our culture? It's really hard to put into words. But it's easy to see and feel what we gain when we hold on to it and share it. By the end of the day, we all hug, say goodbye, and promise to keep in touch. Bill and his research assistants will take all their recordings and archive them. They hope to get a Missouri dialect map online in the future. But these researchers are technically retired and are doing this for fun now. Professor Keel retired from KU at the end of last year, which will make this ongoing project of documenting all this even more than it has already been a labor of love. I, I've made countless, uh, I'll, I'll say, friends or, or uh, uh, people that I've, I've come to know, and, and many of them have now uh, passed away. It's a bittersweet kind of a situation. Really, when it comes down to it, it's not up to Professor Keel or research to keep language alive, though it's great that they are documenting it. It's up to people to keep their dialects alive. People like Neil Heimsoth and their families, and for communities to embrace it and try to pass it down. Otherwise, when they're gone, those jokes, traditions, expressions, stories, and songs are in danger of fading away into the past. Suzanne Hogan. She hosts the podcast A People's History of Kansas City, produced by public radio station KCUR. The podcast is supported by the Midwest Genealogy Center with its searchable version of the Kansas City Star dating back to 1880. I'll post a link to that in the show notes. I'll also include the email address for A People's History of Kansas City, as well as credits for the music in this episode. Thanks to Sylvia Maria Gross, Mike Russo, Matthew Long Middleton, Salisa Kalakal, as well as CJ Janovey, Cody Newell, Tracy Bauer, and Andrea Tudhope. Alison Shaw manages Subtitles Newsletter and social media. Special thanks to Nina Porzuki. Subtitle is a proud member of the Hub & Spoke Audio Collective. We're a group of independent podcasters who tell stories about stuff we value but don't fully understand. Things like the ocean, the future, and of course, language. Let me tell you about one Hub & Spoke podcast. It's called Mementos, and it's about objects that we keep because of the personal stories behind them. A pastor's robe, an empty bottle of rum, letters from a fallen soldier. To listen to Mementos, hosted by Laurie Mortimer, go to hubspokeaudio.org. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.
hub, and spoke. Audio Collective.